Hi, this is Dr. Jonathan Douglas, host of On Psych, the Ontario Psychological Association's podcast. I'm a psychologist in Barrie, Ontario, and I'm also a former president of the Ontario Psychological Association. Back on October 19th, 2021, the Ontario Psychological Association, in association with the City of Toronto, uh, produced a, uh, a really terrific series of uh, presentations um, designed to help uh, frontline workers and managers uh, manage mental health in the workplace during this COVID-19 pandemic. We've been really pleased with the feedback that we got about this, and so we thought we would uh, take these talks and turn them into a series of uh, our podcasts. I want to thank uh, RBC Insurance, who is uh, one of the sponsors of of the uh, of this uh, very special day, and also Jane App, uh, the uh, practice management software which partners with us uh, in doing our um, podcast. The person you're going to hear next is Dr. Sylvain Roy, who's also a, uh, a psychologist and, like me, a former president of OPA. And uh, he's going to introduce uh, the speaker for the day. And uh, I hope you uh, uh, enjoy it. We certainly uh, got great feedback on these talks, and uh, I think you'll find them very informative. Hello again. Thank you all for coming to this panel discussion on the pandemic's impact on service providers. We've invited three system leaders and three psychologists to share their unique perspectives on a topic. I'll start by do introducing you to our three invited leaders. Let's start with Anania Ayodele-Grant. Anania is currently the Director of Community Resources at the City of Toronto. She was the lead consultant and integral in the creation of Toronto's action plan to confront anti-Black racism. In 2018, she established North America's first government-sanctioned strategy and permanent office to address anti-Black racism. As the Director of Social Development, Finance, and Administration Community Resources, Anania has been instrumental in the development and leadership of the Toronto Mental Health Support Strategy, City's Community Engagement and Mobilization for Vaccine Equity, in including the establishment of the Black Scientist Task Force on Vaccine Equity, Vaccine Accessibility Task Force, mm -hmm. and a Youth Vaccine Advisory. Next, we have Kathy Preston. Kathy is currently the Vice President of Individual Markets RBC Insurance. She leads a large, diverse team that is accountable for strategic direction, revenue growth, profitability, product development, pricing, and marketing for RBC Insurance life, health, wealth, and travel insurance businesses aimed at individuals and families. In 2014, Kathy was named one of the top 50 women of influence in Canada, Canada's life insurance industry by Insurance and Investment Journal, a financial services publication. She's a thought leader in the industry and is often featured as media spokesperson, offering tips and advice. She serves as a mentor to many in the industry. Finally, Karen Milligan is the Executive Director of Ontario 211 Services, the coordinating body for for 211 Services in Ontario. Prior to her work with 211, Karen held senior roles at United Way Ottawa in communications capacity building and resources development and began her career in the hotel and the automotive sector. Karen is a values-driven leader who is passionate about finding solutions to complex community challenges. Anania, Kathy and Karen, welcome to this panel. And now to our three psychologists. 
Dr. Taslam Halani Virji is a psychologist living and working in Toronto. She is the founder of director and, and director of Silm Center for Mental Health, a community-based and social justice-oriented practice that seeks to make mental health awareness and services more accessible to communities. Dr. Althea Montero is a psychologist currently working at Callion as a contractor providing telepsychology to active military members across Ontario. She has held several leadership positions that included being the team lead for the neurobehavioral unit at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, psychology lead at the Mount Sinai Function and Pain Program, and professional practice lead psycho uh, psychology at WSIB. And then we have Dr. Jonathan Douglas, who is a practicing psychologist in Barrie, Ontario, a former president of the Ontario Psychological Association and the host of the OPA's podcast on psych. Dr. Douglas currently serves on the board of directors of Badge of Life Canada. Taslam, Althea, and Jonathan, thank you for making the time for being with us today. Now to the questions. Uh, and for the first one, I'll turn to you, Anania. We have been hearing about high rates of burnout among frontline workers. How will this affect workplaces in the future? What can be done to address this burnout? Yes, uh, thank you so much for that question. Uh, we're already hearing uh, directly from community and in so many news reports that workers are being burnt out uh, as, you know, beyond what we've ever, ever seen unprecedented. Workers are leaving frontline sectors um, at unprecedented rates. There will be a loss of skilled and experienced workers in frontline uh, sectors because of this burnout. And so this is something that we must address. Uh, we must address the, and, and this, this in a way that um, change, we, we have to first change the way work is structured to encourage and facilitate better work-life balance among frontline workers and better on-the-job care and supports for, for these workers. Um, sometimes I think we may take it for granted what exactly goes into being on the frontline and having to deal with the crisis and trauma and challenges uh, uh, that comes to them as they try to serve as best as well as possible. So what I would suggest is, yes, take a different look at how we are, are, are structuring uh, frontline workers' uh, work uh, and make sure that we are providing a balance, work-life balance and care, however that looks, because it will look different for everyone. We have to supplement, be able to supplement recreation and wellness activities outside of work. So we assume that when we talk about frontline um, work-life balance, that folks have the ability to do that well. Uh, we have to take responsibility to support that, to provide supplementing care for, for frontline workers, make um, work hours more flexible and ad with adequate breaks. Sometimes 15 minutes is not enough. And 15 minutes at the time we say that 15 minutes should happen is not the, the, the ideal situation. So we need to also talk to frontline workers as what, what are the support that's needed? Maybe it's more than two 15-minute breaks. Maybe it's a longer break. I'm making sure that we provide culturally relevant counseling and other supports in the workplace, such as peer counseling, faith-based support groups, traditional spiritual healing circles, for frontline workers so we can support them and meet them where they are. More expanded health benefits and paid sick leave for frontline workers. Workplace being intentional with fostering cultural care 
uh, within the workplace and outside of the workplace. And I could go on and on, but I, I, I want to leave it there at some of the things that um, some of the ways I think we have to begin to provide that service. Although, before I leave, I, I, I need to mention that um, for us, for us at the city, you know, and in, within the area that I work, we recently funded a research, research project. And I think this is important to note. Um, through the city's downtown East action plan to help us to better understand the issues of burnout among uh, frontline workers and to create preventative strategies. And what, some of the things that we learned were that, the, the, that there is a lack of support um, for frontline workers. Um, and, and, and that is creating huge burnout. So for instance, they're having issues in support in really optimizing how they support the, the, the people that they serve because the people that they serve are unable to meet basic needs, access to food, access to housing, that sort of thing. And that creates additional stress upon the frontline workers. And so we, we're, 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 we're looking at this uh, very seriously and making sure that we're providing the supports needed. The other thing that came up through this, uh, this research was uh, Black workers in particular was experiencing ex <laughs> extreme anti-Black racism from the client base, yes? Because um, these issues in situations where clients are already frustrated about the system that they're within, they're in, uh, the anti-Black racism comes out in really cruel uh, cruel way, and it is critical that we pay attention to these things and how it's affect, affecting Black workers. Frontline workers also noted uh, the benefits of anti-Indigenous and anti-Black racism training among all staff, but also how do we make sure that we reinforce that within, within the institution, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, racism in general, um, opp uh, uh, oppression of any form, um, harassment in any form is not tolerated, even among the most marginalized clients. So those are some of the things that came up and 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 that we are we we have already started and we are certainly um, paying much attention to. And I wanted to share that with everyone because that those those findings were important and where we're going with it are important for frontline workers. I'm really happy you, you brought that up because uh, I'm a psychologist who actually work in a downtown East region, working in our, our homeless shelters and uh, with the city of Toronto's Seton House and other shelters. And uh, I've seen firsthand of the impact the pandemic has had on them, but also the other layers that we don't often talk about from a mental health perspective, which is, um, you know, the racism that's actively being felt and, and experienced um, and, and so many other layers. So thank you for bringing that research up. I think OPA was part of that. And I think we wanted to, to, to provide our feedback and support that, you know, that pilot as best we can. I'm glad it's going to keep, you know, bringing some new insights for all of us. Um, as a follow-up, Taslam, um, on burnout and feeling disengaged, um, Anania mentioned that the downtown East, you know, sector uh, and group are trying to you know, develop new innovative um, strategies and, and plans to to address burnout and, and the, that feeling of being disengaged. But um, some organizations have had a hard time uh, with things like employee engagement initiatives 
and they haven't seen the success they wanted. Are there any tips or strategies that can help us with this? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, you know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, so rewind back to March 2020, which feels like yesterday and a million years ago at the same time, um, I was seeing a lot of workplaces trying to engage their team members in ways that they hadn't done before. Um, but some of the examples that I was hearing of these approaches um, seemed to be putting extra burden on the worker. So things like, you know, take two hours from your afternoon and let's all put our screens on and bake together, or let's all go play a game together on our computers. And while in spirit, these sound like really lovely ways to connect with one another and to do something that's different than what needs to be done. Um, what that meant for a lot of people is that they just had to spend longer in their workday to finish what they needed to do. Um, and so it put undue pressure and burden on people to show up, to have a happy face when they show up, um, and then to be ready to actually stay longer and work longer than they had committed to doing. So I think when we're talking about workplaces that are trying to engage their workers, the first thing we need to do is listen to them. Listen to what they want, listen to what they need, listen to how they're feeling. I think we so much want to take action right away that we forget that we don't know, none of us ever, even as a psychologist, I never know what is best for somebody else. I need to listen. I need to understand. I need to acknowledge and I need to recognize that what a person needs may or may not be within my skill set or my tool set. But that doesn't mean there isn't an opportunity to come together as a team to problem solve. We're also in a very different part of the pandemic than we were in March 2020. And so if workplaces are using those same strategies of, of meeting and connecting, um, people aren't, I mean, there are many people who are still quite anxious, but people for the most part aren't anxious the way they were back in March 2020. We understand this pandemic better. We understand our roles in our workplaces, hopefully a little bit better. We have some sort of understanding of what a return to work may or may not look like if our employers are giving us that information. And so as, as we as individuals have had to adapt to this pandemic, our employers, our workplaces have also had to adapt. And if they haven't, then they're losing people along the way because they're seeing that their employer is not adaptive, is not recognizing their needs as individuals. I think going back to Aina Nia was also talking about, we need to recognize that people are not void of their identities when they're at their workplace. Just because you are frontline doesn't mean you're not carrying your social identities and locations with you. And so what each person is going to need will be a little bit different. And we need to acknowledge this. This pandemic has not been the same for all of us. And so as employers, as managers, as supervisors, again, listen and really listen to what your team members are asking of you. And know when it's outside of your ability to deliver and then find other ways to deliver it. Because if you don't, what you're communicating to people is that, yes, you hear that they're struggling right now and you as a person of power aren't willing to exercise that power to do anything about it. And so we have commitments as people in power, as supervisors, as managers, as employers 
If we're going to ask someone to be vulnerable with us, we need to be ready to deliver. Otherwise, we may as well not engage in the exercise. Thank you. The next question will be for Althea. And I want to bring back what Anania said about the experience of frontline workers. And it's, it's tied to uh, racism felt from the, the clientele that we're trying to support. What has been the impact of the la- you know, over the last 18 months on frontline workers who are Black, Indigenous, and color of people from your experience? You're a clinical psychologist. You support uh, a lot of folks. What can you tell us? I think it's led to fractures uh, in teams. I think it's led to people being so fully aware and conscious of their social identities, their quote-unquote racial identities, their ethnic identities, sometimes identities they don't claim. Uh, being imposed on them, um, being symbols for something they never wanted to be a symbol of. Um, Sometimes their competence is called into question. Sometimes their ability to serve, to do their jobs is called into question. A lot of assumptions have been made about how they got their jobs. Uh, There's been fear uh, among a lot of frontline workers um, of imposter syndrome, but also of that their identities are being held against them. Um, and how can they have a job when I don't have a job? And, you know, and, you know, people of color, they're entitled, they get special treatment. I've heard it all. Um, and there's been a lot of defensiveness, um, even within communities of people of color, when people are in positions to serve the community versus people who have to receive. Uh, so lots of tension and conflict there. Um, I think, honestly, um, there's been a degree of disenfranchisement that is scary. And um, because of the fractures being created within teams, this is what I've noticed primarily in the frontline workers I work with, um, it's made the job harder for people of color. Um, and there's a lot to be done to repair it. Um, that ha- that work hasn't started, I think, in a lot of systems yet, where people can have those honest conversations. People can understand what it's like to live in somebody's skin, to have their history, to have the trauma of that history sometimes, um, to identify with certain aspects of that history and not identify with other aspects of the history, um, and to celebrate them as an individual with competencies, abilities, and limitations, because... I, I always fear, I've noticed this in frontline workers who are of color, they feel like they have to do even more uh, to prove themselves, and then they feel like they still don't reach the mark. Um, so I think it's a lot of pressure, and that the pandemic has just increased that pressure on uh, frontline workers of culture. Oh, I'm sorry, of uh, color. Yeah. Of that said, Althea, or, you know, when we turn to think return to normal or, uh, you know, return to employment, what are some special considerations that need to be made um, when thinking about this? Well, we actually can't control when racist, overt racism happens or even microaggressions happen. I don't think systems can control that. We can't control individual acts. What we can do is actually shape how the system responds to those acts. So we can shape validation of the experience of microaggressions, of overt racism. We can actually have policies in place where you know the system does not, will not tolerate this. We can have education, but education not just at the broad systems level, also for the individuals engaging in these acts. Um, So I think that work needs to be done, but also this conversation uh, of 
you're going to struggle because people are going to be attacking you at times, calling your competence into question, et cetera. And you don't need to own that is going to be critical. I think one of the best conversations I had with uh, somebody who reached out um, and said, I'm really struggling because I don't know what to do to make them see how much I'm struggling. And she was talking about a medical system and she was talking about her peer group and her workplace. And I said, why are you owning their lack of seeing? You don't have to work. You have to be you. You need to stabilize. You need to figure out how to do you. And then you need to use your allies, uh, talk to systems partners within the systems and figure out how you can survive in the system. But you don't own it. You cannot take the complete totality of systemic racism or invisibility and try to fix it by yourself. And that was a turning point for her because she was finally able to grieve that she couldn't fix this. And it really wasn't up to her as an individual to fix it. Thank you. Kathy. Um I'm, I'm kind of reminiscent of all the conversation we've had in the past. And how has the pandemic affected the rates and duration of sick leave? What have, you know, what have you been seeing at RBC Insurance and what factors do you see are contributing to this? Yeah, so just to give a little bit of context, we have the group um, business, so the long-term disability. And then my book is predominantly the individual side of it. So there's a lot of doctors, there's a lot of nurses. There is quite a few psychologists as well that have extra, like the coverage within my book. Um, I've found that the rates, we have like a 10% higher incidence rate already. Um, I seriously think, and a lot of the folks on this panel have already alluded to it. Um, I seriously think people are just going to drop out um, even further because it's so prolonged. So they will eventually take, I, I don't think I've seen the last of higher disability rates, particularly on the mental health side or even on the physical side where they're not getting checked. And then there's also the um, comorbidity of the anxiety and other things around um, disease. And a lot of people just aren't going to get checked at their doctor regularly and other things like that. And their healthcare workers are also struggling. So I've seen a huge um, increase in, in disability and a, and a huge increase in complexities too. Um, so for example, uh, one of the doctors, she works like 80 hours a week and she's really struggling. She thinks, and she's looking at her life like a lot of other people and saying, is this work-life balance good for me? I don't think it is. Maybe I only want to work 30 hours or 40 hours, but then what does that look like for me? And how can I actually be more balanced um, in, in my life? So there, there's a lot of that going on, um, way more complexities than the past that are harder to answer the questions. Um, and, you know, we have worked a lot with the OPA uh, to figure out different programs that we can do to try to help people. But the one size fit all thing does not work, um, as mentioned on this panel. And that's actually tough as well, because you put things out there, but the utilization tends to be low on that. And, you know, I, do you really want to go online and do something else after being online all day or, or struggling with your job? Uh, so it's a tricky situation. 
um, very tricky um, and complicated. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm mindful about the systems as well, in this as well now, right? Like if the doctor is working 40 hours a week, how supportive is the workplace? How, how flexible is the workplace? Because we've already started to hear about uh, just because there's so many people that have left the workforce already, it's, it's creating a lot of pressures on those that are remaining uh, and doing work. So if they leave, then they, they understand quite well that this will impact care. Uh, and so on. And there's going to be uh, an erosion of services that will happen. So it's like an av avalanche, right? It starts little, but it, it builds up over time. And yep. then we start having a real um, visible impact in the community. And if you're seeing it all the way at RBC insurance and, and people actually more people going on on leave for mental health reasons, what are we doing or, or what are we not doing as a system to prevent that? And I think um, you know, OPA has been involved in those conversations and, and how to, you know, it, it's a systemic issue and it, it, it's, we have to think more about prevention. And frankly, we should probably have seen this coming to some extent a little bit so, sooner, uh, not, not to lay blame, but I think we were so knee deep in our, our pandemic response that sometimes, uh, you know, collectively as a system, we failed to see this coming. And, and now we're seeing the impact of that and it might get worse to your point. Um, yeah. Jonathan, I think, to um, just to, to dive that to dive into that question, the impact of burnout and disability in people's lives, I, I don't think it can be under, understated. Uh, what should we be thinking about to better support Canadians' mental health? And that, that's uh, it, it, you're so right. It follows up so beautifully on what uh, what Kathy was describing. You know, with the increase, um, and I, I'm I'm really concerned that you know, as as Kathy is, that we're just at the beginning of that wave. And, you know, we're going to be seeing a massive wave, you know, uh, I think particularly among medical personnel who traditionally are, you know, they're even worse than police. I think at this point, the police have been talking about, uh, you know, this stuff, the first responders and the military have been talking about this stuff for some time now. And I think it's only just beginning to occur to physicians that maybe they're human beings. <laughs> they, they can't just keep pushing through everything. And, and you know, the pandemic is really exposing uh, the limitations of, of, of that perspective. Something I often see in my practice is uh, what we call sanctuary trauma. And that's when people are expecting, you know, okay, now I've, 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 I've hit the wall, but I've got that long-term disability. I've got that, you know, good relationship with the employer. I've got WSIB. I've got these systems behind me that they're going to catch me when I fall. And then they become a bit shocked when they find out that they have to prove and prove and prove again, you know, that they are, are sick, that they're struggling, um, that they have to prove that they're not faking. Um, and what can happen as this, you know, the, the, the negative relationship uh, begins to spiral is that the worker becomes embittered and that embitteredness actually gets in the way of healing. And, and this is something which has been a problem, you know, regardless of what the third party payer system is, uh, that, that is always a concern. But I think as the economy gets worse as we start to see economic hits and as costs start to spiral, that my concern is, is that those systems try to respond to that by cost containment. Let's limit access to uh, the benefits because saying no is by far, you know, the, uh, the, the cheapest solution. If we can stop that person from gaining access, 
you know, through the system, then that saves money. Um, limiting access to treatment, you know, is another way in which these things often attempt to cost contain. And, and they're actually, of course, contributing more and more to that embitteredness, which really sets up a vicious cycle where the person's simply not going to heal and it turns into a longer claim instead of a shorter claim and a more complex presentation. And these things can really start to spiral out of control. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to see, you know, the systems develop in such a way that, you know, um, I, I keep coming back to those two simple little words, be kind, right? And I think this is, it's not just about those systems, it's about all of us in society. It's about all of us in psychology right now. This concept of simply be kind. Let's try to be supportive of one another, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's standing in line in the, in the supermarket, you know, whether, it, you know, it's it, it, all of it. It's, it really boils down to compassion. And I think a lot of the systems are, they're so highly sensitized to fraud. They're constantly looking for, you know, what's the evidence that this person's faking the system, faking the disease, faking the illness, that it isn't real, you know, that they're milking the system. And clinically, I, I wouldn't say I've never seen that, right? But I see it very rarely. And yet the system is so built up as if that's the big cost here is this, you know, potential for fraud. You know, when I think the really big cost is the potential for, you know, harm caused by constantly searching for fraud, you know, and I think that's a big part of the problem. Um, and I, I think, you know, in terms of the short term, I'm not sure we have great solutions. I think we need a, a whole different mental health system. And I really appreciate, you know, some of the uh, the efforts that, you know, OPA and and you know RBC and uh, Ontario two one one have been you know doing in, in the city of Toronto. All of these great systems, you know, have been coming together to try to you know meet these needs, um, you know, in a, in a in a more effective fashion. And I think we have to look at the long term as well. You know that you know psychologists, for example, are such a tiny tiny uh, um, uh, part of the mental health system. And we need a lot more of us, right? We need to be thinking about, you know, training and how can we can get, you know, training to happen more efficiently. But beyond that, we have to start taking better advantage of all of those six colleges with the access to the controlled active psychotherapy, you know, and, and maximizing all of our ability, you know, to be helping as we, you know, we have to face this together. And I think psychology sometimes is a little bit guilty of not working and playing well with others. And I think other professions sometimes aren't working and playing well with us. And I think we need to, you know, figure out how we can integrate the systems, you know, so, I mean, the first question that I end up having to ask on, you know, when, when people call my private practice is what's your coverage and, you know, so what you've got coverage for is going to end up determining who in my practice you're able to see. And I think that's a real problem because it's not about triaging to the right, uh, you know, person to deal with that problem. It's about triaging to the right insurance. <laughs> that's not right, you know. When we need to be able to integrate these things so much more effectively, so that those who are seeing, you know, uh, the psychologist aren't the people with the best job. 
they're the people with the greatest need. And I, and and that's a real uh, uh, dilemma. I, I don't. We have no quick solution to that, but I think that's what we ultimately need to be working towards. I want to gravitate to one of your comments, Jonathan, just two minutes ago um, about coming together. And I think this is what we've tried to do different this year in the past two years. I think uh, highlighting partnerships that have come together, uh, that have pulled up their sleeves in response to the pandemic. Two one one, you know, front and center. I think uh, you know, you and I, Karen, has had dozens of conversations over the past couple of years and, and to your, your, your teams. Uh, but also, you know, I, I want to highlight, you know, our family physicians, colleagues, nurse practitioners, uh, the, the family health team, CHCs, uh, you know, all of us came together and we're willing to talk to each other to think about, you know, to start thinking outside the box and how do we can come up together. And the city of Toronto took it a step further and, and brought all these nice partners together with all the community agencies and created a forum for us to exchange ideas, to learn from each other and so on. And part of me feels that this was like this at a small scale, we've achieved a lot of great things. How do we scale that up? And Anania, that's gonna be your challenge, how the provincial government and the, maybe the federal government to kind of emulate what you've done at the city of Toronto. Um, but my next question uh, is gonna be for you, Karen. Uh, at 211, you not only support frontline workers, psychologists, doctors, and everybody else who needs uh, mental health and social services, but you support the entire population of Ontario and in every corner of the province. What can you tell us about the needs of Ontarians calling you every day for help? Thanks, Sylvain, and, uh, and thank you to everybody for your comments. I, I, so many of them really... Uh, really reflected what our experience was throughout the pandemic. Um, so I guess a couple of things in terms of the needs of 211 callers that we saw play out over the course of the pandemic, certainly um, what was most apparent was that a lot of those needs were for very basic services, things like food and transportation and housing, income support for thousands and thousands of people who had lost their jobs and and certainly mental health supports was on that list from the very beginning although uh, what we saw was that that really played out more as the pandemic uh, sort of played on and became extended so where um, you know we certainly had People identify that they were calling looking for mental health and addiction supports. What our navigators told us is that actually almost every caller who called over the course of that time period was expressing some level of increased anxiety or stress. And so, you know, being uh, having one can of food left in the cupboard to go for the rest of the week, for example, Inevitably, that person is going to be experiencing not just the food security issue, but the mental health anxiety stress that comes with that. So anecdotally, we know that a good portion of Ontarians were challenged in so many ways by the pandemic. Um, the other thing that we certainly understood from speaking with our staff and, and from looking at the data that was collected is that, you know, definitely the needs increased over prior years. So, you know, in some cases, it was 
more than 100% increase in the number of people reaching out to 211. And, and one of the primary things that I think became apparent is that there was so much information out there, but such a void in terms of clear um, information and instructions around so many different elements of the pandemic that, again, you know, became really frustrating for our staff because, again, as so many of you have mentioned, our goal was to try and address the needs of the people who are contacting us. In many cases, certainly as the pandemic played on, what we found was that there was an increased number of unmet needs or gaps that we weren't able to address because, you know, for a variety of reasons, I would say in some cases, the services just don't exist. Uh, Certainly, you know, what we've identified is that for certain populations, culturally appropriate or ethno-specific mental health supports just don't exist in many communities. So those gaps are were particularly frustrating for the frontline staff. And um, and I think, you know, certainly we spent an awful lot of time over the course of the first months of the pandemic really constantly updating our data around what services were in place and what services were emerging to deal with some of those uh, more urgent needs in communities. Hey OnSite listeners, Katie here from Jane. I wanted to take a few seconds to say you're doing incredible work. Whether you're a receptionist, office manager, practitioner, or all of the above, we see your commitment to your clients. Jane was built to help you transform that commitment into a thriving business, all while making your day-to-day easier. You can head to jane.app forward slash mental health to read more and see if we can be a good fit for your practice. You mentioned something that kind of stuck with me right now. Well, there's many things you've just said that I want to, to to talk about, but I probably won't have the time. But one of them is we often forget that the people who pick up the the the, the, the phone lines are actually frontline workers at the forefront of the pandemic. Uh, all our crisis lines, all our you know, and and two one one, or you're the navigators in Ontario. You are kind of the ones being looked at as know all you should be you know where are those resources and so on and and i'm also mindful that at the end of the line are real human beings trying to help the, the caller and try to navigate those resources and when the resources aren't available if people don't have food and, and people don't have access to counseling and people don't have access to culturally um, you know appropriate services that has not only an impact on the caller but it has an impact on the person who receives the call what you know? What has been the experience of two one one throughout the pandemic and your navigators? But also, what have you done internally to support the mental health of your team? Great question. And and again, I think you know, in we're in the helping business, so traditionally, people in our sector are will sort of push down their own feelings so that they can continue to be there for for the people that need us. So. Certainly in the early days of the pandemic, we were just dealing with an onslaught of new demand and trying to immediately grow our capacity to answer those calls. So, you know, we we didn't think a lot about it in the early days, I will say. Um, 
However, as and it wasn't long before we recognized that it was taking a toll on the front lines and we were hearing about it from the supervisors and managers who I think partly were struggling with what they were hearing and and trying to help people with. But also, you know, we all of a sudden that support system that was there for those staff when they were all sitting in the same contact center, for example, and could debrief after a tough call with um, with a supervisor or with a, a team lead, those supports were no longer there. We tried to do some of that virtually and, and with some varying levels of success. But really, I think our supervisors and managers were also struggling with how to properly support their teams in this brave new world. So, you know, again, working with you, Dr. Roy, and, and uh, others, we, we sort of identified that we needed help. And we um, were very fortunate to begin to work with Dr. Taslim, and she worked with our entire 2-in-1 team. Um, what, we, what we engaged Dr. Taslim to do was to help us not only sort of provide that immediate support to our supervisors and managers, helping them understand how to best support their teams at this time. We also wanted to create what we call the community of care framework. And and the notion was, as many people have indicated, the needs of individuals are just that. They're very individual. And everybody, as we've heard, is going to have a different experience with this. Some have small kids at home. God bless anybody who's been able to homeschool and work at the same time during this pandemic. So, so of course, recognizing that what people need and what they wanted in terms of support and where they were at with their own mental health, even prior to the pandemic, was all going to influence what kind of support they needed today. So having the ability for our supervisors and managers to engage in those one-on-one conversations and understand the individual needs of the frontline staff was key. Um, one of the things that we also did was we provided the opportunity for all staff to have the one-on-one counseling support. Some of our organizations had benefits programs, some didn't. So therefore, some staff had access to an EAP or to some sort of psychological counseling. Others had no benefits. so. What we said was, we don't really care who has an EAP program. We're going to make this one-on-one counseling available to everybody. And we did that, and we continue to do that. We've renewed the relationship with Dr. Taslim beyond, you know, the the uh, the first few months. And um, and our staff have been incredibly grateful for the support. Certainly, um, Dr. Taslim is as we lovingly refer to her, has been actually uh, just so well received. And and our our supervisors and managers have um, enjoyed working with her specifically and her team. But also, you know, they they appreciate and they've told us how much they appreciate the fact that we've made this investment in them. So I think that is really the takeaway for me is that, you know, as as Jonathan said, let's not start with um, 
sort of rules and penalties and and that being the approach that we take. Start, as Dr. Taslim said, with listening and understanding what the needs are. And then, you know, we'll we'll find a way to to make it work in terms of identifying budget or funding for that. I think that's the key is if we don't do this, then then we would likely be in a far worse position as far as as our um, attrition rates. So, thank you for that. It's it's really great to hear the perspective uh, of two one one because again, you are the one feeling all these calls out there and these unmet needs. And I think what knowledge you gather today will help us in the months to come to kind of figure out where what's our next cup going to be and how do we not only support the frontline workers you know answering those calls and more broadly caring for the population but also start to think about the idea of like how do we develop programs and services to care for the entire populations in particular some vulnerable groups who have nothing today um i'm gonna now we've all had a chance to kind of get to know you uh, individually, I want to open a question to the entire panel. So there's, I'm not going to point fingers uh, to who's going to answer this one, but I guess the biggest question we have now, um, you know, with the COVID count going down is, do we anticipate a return to normal next year or will there be permanent changes, impl- uh, you know, be implemented in the way we live or work? So I just want to get your perspective on us. Is there a return to normal in, in our future? Who wants to go first? I'll jump in first, Dave. Just I'll get it out of the way. I think from a two-on-one perspective, um, what we learned was that it is possible to work remotely, right? And and we we operate in an integrated system with um, sort of a virtual cloud-based infrastructure. So. And we've now developed some tools and techniques for how to operate in that virtual environment. I think the key for me is that I, I don't see us ever returning to the way it was entirely. And it's the flexibility that is going to be required. And again, going back to the point we made earlier, it it will be individualized. I think that's what we have to expect in the future, that some will want to go back and some will never want to go back. And and I think as employers, we have to figure out a way to make uh, make that work for people. I find one of your points very interesting, virtual. And maybe I'll point to the three psychologists on a panel right now. We've just saw a letter that was issued by the Ministry of Health and uh, the College of, uh, of uh, not the college, but the, the college overseeing fa- the, the physicians in Ontario, uh, encouraging folks to return to in-person visits. Um, do do you foresee the same thing uh, happening with psychology as the virtual will actually help the delivery of care in Ontario, or uh, we went too far to the virtual side and not enough of the in-person side? I, I think it depends on the nature of the uh, the service. Um, working with kids, as far as I can see, I don't work with kids personally, but I have those in my practice who do. And it's nearly impossible. Like ch- children are just very, very difficult, whether it's the assessment processes, um, you know, and, and you as a neuropsychologist would recognize that as well. There are certain things that psychologists do uh, that simply cannot be done virtually very easily. I, on the other hand, had a practice that was extraordinarily easy. Uh, and, you know, in the space of you know, one weekend over uh, in in March 2020, I became 100% virtual. 
and haven't looked back. Um, I don't anticipate going back to, um, you know, a, a practice that looked like that. Uh, not least, part of what I think about with it is the the carbon footprint. You know, looking at my parking lot and recognizing that, you know, for every therapist in my office at the top of an hour, there would be three cars, the therapists, the client in the office, and the next client waiting to go in. And, you know, that's a huge, uh, uh, you know, amount of, of uh, carbon that we don't need to, you know, to be going back to. And the convenience for people sometimes of being able to do it virtually, but also the impossibility others. And so it, it, it's, it's, I think that we're going to have some kind of a hybrid but I think it's going to be, you know, very dependent on those individual factors. And then there are things like schooling, right, where I think the adult world can make tremendous advantages and, you know, uh, you know, really enjoy, you know, the flexibility. And then something like schooling, I don't anticipate it. I think that we're going to have to, you know, try to figure out how to keep kids in school as safely as possible. and. You know, I, I just don't see, you know, um, online learning uh, being something that can be sustainable in the long term because it's so, so hard on the parents. Kathy, anything to add from your perspective? Yeah, so I know that a lot of companies are talking about the hybrid I think to the point that a lot of panelists made, it's very individual. So, for example, there's a lot of collaboration that needs to be done. And even in this panel, if I met these people and had coffee, I think, you know, we'd be gelled uh, and maybe it's only once. And even my doctor, I mean, I can't show my rheumatologist necessarily what's happening. He, he needs to see it and we've been virtual for a while. So I need to show him a few things that have changed um shortly so at least he's having more in-person visits and he was one of the few guys that offered it and he got taken up on it a lot he said he was getting clients from you know barry and other places um that he hadn't had before so i think it is a mix and i think it's very individual i mean there's a few teams uh that work with me that i'm fine if they stay at home the productivity is there um they they're not necessarily social beings uh in the introverted type uh, personalities, a lot of them. So they're, they're fine on their own and they, they like it. Um, they have lunches every once in a while, but uh, I think it's very individual. And I think um, I have to say at least RBC has been trying hard to figure it out and all the teams are quite different and even the different companies within RBC. I think HR has navigated as best they can because there's no playbook here. Um, and I think they'll be pivoting and adjusting because I don't know how you coordinate collaboration activities um, within companies easily. If it's a smaller company, maybe, but a larger company, it it gets pretty tough uh, to do that. So anyway, hopefully the technology continues to be good, if not better, so uh, to keep going. So I think there's a lot of advantages. I mean, I've had calls with Germany and Norway and stuff that never would have happened. I wouldn't have seen those people in person, more than likely. So anyway. Thanks for that. My next question to the group before I open it up to um, uh, our viewers is what will need uh, what we, what will we need to do to improve mental health care in Ontario for the foreseeable future? And Anania, I'll, I'll let you answer that one first. I'm on mute. 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I really, I want to say this first. I give so much gratitude to you, Dr. Roy, um, and the Ontario Psychology Association. I, I just want to put that, I want to say that because it's important. And for all the partners that we brought together, you know this, in, in March 2019, when we, you know, some kind of foresight dropped and said, we need to deal with mental health. We, that is, that has to be dealt with first in the middle of all of the things that we, all of the responses we were giving around COVID. And we have seen what this has done um, for, 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 for everyone, um, especially those most marginalized. We know that COVID has affected um, Indigenous, uh, Black, and people of color more than anyone, right? We know the impact of that. I won't spend a lot of time talking about that. But what I do know also is that because we, uh, the city, put out, uh, was able to fund community agencies to, and brought together agencies and, and the, the Psychology Association and worked together as a team to one, see what was happening, what was needed, but also to respond to the needs and to respond to the needs of community. We know the high rates uh, of, of men mental health um, issues across. What we need now is we have to continue that work. We see the impact of that work. The, the, the city's mental health support strategy made a huge impact. We know that as we're looking towards 2022, this is not going to get better. In fact, the, the mental health crisis is going to increase. I, I, I can see it. We all can see it. We know that because the economy, so I, I think it was Jonathan who mentioned it. Cost is going to go up, right? And, need, and the ability to pay for anything is going to go down because people have lost their jobs. And, 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 and. So what we need now is not to pause not to stop, not to end the work we have started with a mental health support strategy, but to expand it. We, and I have, I, I am a city employee. I, 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 and what I am pushing from behind, of course, is advocacy for this to be continued, for there to be an increase, and for other levels of governments to take this up because it is needed and it is good business sense. Because if we take care of the mental health of, of, of our community, what we are in fact doing is creating opportunities for people to thrive. And if people thrive, the need for, uh, for, for government assistance is going to go down. It is simple math. And so um, what do I have to say about that? Is we want to continue this work. We're going to do the best that we can to continue this work. We want to scale up. Not pause, not stop, and so uh, and and continue the work of, with all of you uh, on this call. And I'll stop. <laughs> I love the answer, by the way, uh, Karen. What are your thoughts? Sorry, I was on mute. Uh, I mean, I guess what's needed. It is a really complex ecosystem the whole mental health and addictions landscape. And, and quite frankly, you know, funded by multiple ministries, 
which creates a situation where in some cases there's duplication of effort and yet it creates gaps in other places. Um, so I'd say the number one thing that the, that we need in Ontario is a coordinated system and, and a strategy, um, and, and sort of awareness of where those gaps are currently. And I don't think that any individual ministry has a good uh, view into that because they're solely focused on seniors or they're solely focused on children's mental health or, you know, so all of these little pockets of activity, post-secondary students, but it's all creating an ecosystem that is busy with, you know, lots of tools and and emerging digital platforms, but yet some real gaps in in particular populations or in particular types of services. So coordination, I guess, is is the word collaboration and and making it easier for people to understand how to get the help they need. Thank you. And I'm seeing the time run down quickly. And I don't want to forget the, the questions our, our attendees are asking right now. I'll start with one. And it's the question is actually directed to all panelists. Um, can you speak towards client outcomes uh, in regards to virtual and or in-person therapy? Aside from reducing a carbon footprint, um, is rapport building hindered? Are clients sustaining positive life changes deteriorating? Is anyone collecting data on this? Well, I think I first. can speak. Yeah, I, I think I can speak to that a bit. Um, we actually already knew uh, prior to the pandemic that, uh, that the outcomes were very substantially similar um, because there, you know, virtual therapy is not a brand new thing. It ha- it had been been done before. Um, with respect to the uh, uh, the rapport, interestingly, I I had one meeting with a supervisee. I'd literally never met her face to face and she was in the office. Ooh, we get to actually see each other. And, 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 you know, so we both put on masks and sat across in a very large room and I did my supervision meeting and I was astounded at how much I missed, uh, not having to wear a mask, uh, because it, it, I lost so much in the, in the visual. And I actually found the, you know, compared to doing therapy with a mask, doing therapy online is infinitely superior, if you ask me. You know, I, I can read so much more. I think rapport is easier uh, when, you, when you see the full face. Um, and so, you know, compared to that, I would say, uh, you know, a virtual therapy is superior. There certainly are circumstances where that's not the case. And, you know, we have to be open to the you know, the individual circumstances and how good somebody's, you know, internet is broadwood and, you know, this kind of a thing, broadband and, you know, uh, issues of poverty, you know, obviously play a role in, in that. What kind of equipment does somebody have and, you know, how good is their cell service where they happen to live and all of this stuff. But, um, you know, generally speaking, I, I think it's it, it goes OK, although there are some techniques that I do feel I, I can't really do, you know, through the uh, through the virtual means. Thank you, Jonathan. Another question. I am learning more about strength-based leadership, building on what is strong rather than what is wrong. How can we apply this to a, uh, this approach, this wave of burnout? Who wants to take a go at that one? 
I'm happy to give it a shot. Uh, oh, go ahead, Ainidia. You, yeah. No, you're you're the psychologist. Go ahead. Well, I was just I was just going to say I think there's something really beautiful about that. Um, you know, we're all coming in with strengths and with weaknesses simply in our humanity. Um, but when we can focus on where people are at and allow them to build um, and build well and build with confidence and comfort and safety. That's where we see people grow. Um, And, you know, in thinking about then what we need to do to support people's mental health, I think that's a fantastic place to start, right? Mental health services are not just those one-on-one therapeutic encounters. Every single interaction we have with every single person every single day affects our mental health. And so if we have the intention of really taking care of people, leaders have a, an essential role to play in that. And focusing on um, what our team members' strengths are, also on their weaknesses, but not as flaws or failure, but simply as weaknesses because we all come with them, then we can really allow for a beautiful process of growth and evolution that we are all on together. That's amazing. And I see I have one minute left here. And I'm trying, I'm going to try to squeeze one in very quickly. This is going to be the last question. The expectation of an EAP program is short term. How do we address the needs of members who require more sustained support, but we do not currently meet the threshold of an escalated response? Most programs expect that the matter will be resolved in three one hour visits. Althea, I'll point at you for this one. <laughs> Um, I think uh, one of the things is actually having a distinction between what is mental illness and what is a normative distress response. And EAP, I think, is really good at helping people cope with immediate normative uh, distress responses and enhancing resilience and tolerance and all those wonderful things. But then when things start to get disrupted in function, people's ability to do things at home, because that's usually the first to go, people's ability to connect with people in their community and their support systems, people's ability to work and function occupationally. That's when you call in sort of the bigger guns. Um, People being able to actually target um, maybe through the Ontario Psychotherapy Support Program, uh, through people who can afford private practice, through hospital systems, because I know there are um, uh, psychological services still available in those. Then that needs to be targeted differently and that needs to be dealt with differently. So I think AP is wonderful at really getting a lot of people very quickly to enhance their resilience and distress. And then when things, when they're noticing there's no change in their ability to actually do the day to day, I think that's when you sort of pull plug and say, okay, you need something more than this. And where do we go from there? Is there a psychotherapist, social worker, psychologist in your family health team? Is there, um, you know, is there a hospital that you can get access through? Uh, what other benefits do you have? What other resources are available in your community and so on and so forth? Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone. We're at time now. And thank you for all the listeners who have asked some wonderful questions. Um, so we'll leave it at that. I want just to th- take a moment to thank every single one of you because all the answers you've provided have been enlightening. Again, true insight building. I really appreciate all of you coming today and sharing your perspectives. Hey there, this is Katie from Jane. 
Thanks for letting our team be a part of your listening experience over these past few months. We're proud to be sponsors of the Ontario Psychological Association and the OnSite podcast. If you're new to Jane, let me tell you a bit about us. Jane is complete practice management software that can help you navigate your day-to-day with ease and flexibility. This means simple scheduling, streamlined billing, intuitive charting, and so much more. We'd love to meet you and hear your story. Our team is only a phone call or email away, and you can find us over at jane.app forward slash mental health. We look forward to hearing from you. You've been listening to one of the segments from Managing Mental Health in the Workplace During COVID-19, a conference which was put on on October 19th by the Ontario Psychological Association and the City of Toronto in association with RBC Insurance. We'd also like to thank Jane App, our sponsor for this podcast. We hope you'll continue to listen to some of the uh, uh, further presentations that will be drawn from that uh, very exciting day. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you as well in the new year when we begin to bring you episodes from Season 2 of OnPsych, our, our podcast on all things psychological in the province of Ontario. Until then, thanks for listening. You have been listening to OnPsych, presented by the Ontario Psychological Association. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Mm-hmm.